Because you get that legend is a phrase bandied around sport far too easily. Because you get that politics is more about what's possible. Because you get that a cryptic clue can have a simple solution. Because you get the benefit of hearing other opinions. The Irish Times. Because you get it. Enjoy unlimited access to informed opinion and real news. Visit irishtimes.com and get the first month for just one euro. T's and C's apply. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. August the 15th, 1982. The old courthouse in Dunleary, County Dublin, was located down a narrow lane away from the main street. From early morning on that Sunday, people had congregated in the laneway. By mid-morning, it was as crowded as a Cairo souk. A line of teenagers sat on a high ivy-clad wall, overlooking the lane, watching the events as they unfolded. At midday, the convoy of gore cars and vans arrived. Malcolm MacArthur was taken out and a blanket was thrown over his head. A phalanx of detectives encircled him to protect him from the crowd, which began jostling and hurling abuse at him. He was rushed into the courthouse, which was also packed with Gordy and members of the public. Among them was the newspaper seller, George Davis. And I remember when he took him into the courtroom, we were there, we were saying, we were part of that. The hearing lasted 11 minutes. The Irish press newspaper reported that Malcolm MacArthur wore a frayed white shirt with a red spotted bow tie, a fawn cord jacket, grey trousers and laced brown shoes. He told the court he was not working. The reporter from the Irish press noted the banal aside of MacArthur to detectives about his interest in astronomy. The same newspaper reported he had a major degree in astrophysics from Cambridge University. That, of course, was untrue. With his exotic appearance and aristocratic bearing, the capture and charging of Malcolm MacArthur for two senseless murders was in itself a major story. But what propelled it into the stratosphere was the location where the country's most wanted man was arrested, the home of Ireland's Attorney General, Patrick Connolly. Peter Murta, co-author with Joe Joyce of The Boss and then security correspondent with the Irish Times sums up the enormity of the story. It was absolutely sensational. I mean, it was probably one of the most sensational stories that I can think of, certainly in my career and at, and at any stage in the last like, 50 years. I mean, absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the questions just come at 100 miles an hour. You want to know what was going on? How did this happen? What's the relationship between these two people? If listeners to this today think of something like this in the age of social media, you know, Twitter would just implode, Facebook would, would melt down. It's that sort of situation. And of course, 
the terrible thing is people will be making connections and making assumptions and making allegations, most of which, as they frequently are, would be wrong. But as, as a reporter then, and reporters in all of the newspapers, one was running around like a headless chicken for a day or two, trying to put the pieces together to find out what was going on. I'm Harry McGee of the Irish Times, and this is episode six of Gubu, a seven-part series looking at one of the most infamous murder cases in Ireland, and how it almost toppled the government of Charles J. Hawhey 40 years ago. It wasn't called Watergate in, in the Irish context, it was called Gubu. Gubu, famous words, grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre and uh, unbelievable. It was grotesque, it was unbelievable, it was bizarre, it was unprecedented. It was a Gubu situation and Hawhey was right in the middle of it. People, you know, saw all kind of conspiracies during that 81, 82. It was crazy stuff, I mean, the, the place became a bit crazy for a year or two. Let's rewind a few days to the Friday night when MacArthur was arrested in Connolly's apartment in Pilot View. Within an hour of the arrest, the media knew that the man who had bludgeoned Bridie Gargan to death and had shot Donald Dunn at point-blank range had been a house guest of the Attorney General. It was jaw-dropping. I remember the headlines at the time. He'd been found in the apartment of the Attorney General. Here is journalist Brenda Power. A genuinely surreal sense, this, this actually cannot be happening, because of course the Attorney General was a state officer who would be prosecuting him as the state's law officer. And the fact that that's where he turned up, in this lovely, beautiful apartment in the most sought-after address, possibly in the country or one of them, well, well, where else would he be found? He was this dapper character, this sophisticated with his dicky bow and his fine wardrobe. It's hard at this room to convey just what an astonishing turn of events that was. It'd be hard even to think of something currently that would generate as much surprise as that did at the time. Connolly himself was in shock that night. There is no doubt about it. He wasn't the only one. The authorities were also left reeling and scrambling by the events. Ten years later, I interviewed Connolly and he recalled his reaction he said, and I quote, It's very difficult to exaggerate exactly how dumbfounded I was. When I was later informed that he was wanted for murder, I was even more astounded. Even though I rather poo-pooed it at the time, I was actually in a state of shock for the next few days, with the sense of all this being unreal. Connolly had the unenviable task of ringing Brenda Little in Tenerife to inform her that her partner had been arrested for two murders. It was a fraud call. She initially did not believe him. He had one more phone call to make that night. It was to Charles J. Hawhey. The Taoiseach had travelled down the previous day to his holiday island home of Inishvikalon, off the coast of Kerry. Former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern, then government chief whip, describes exactly how remote it was. In Ishvigalon, it depends on boat or chopper. It's a good way off the Kerry coast, off the Blaskets. A fairly wild and wonderful place. Beautiful on a summer's day. Fairly horrendous on a winter's day. But um, it's, it's a place of great natural beauty. And uh, uh, Charlie's house was fitted into the island. And um, 
you know, a re really uh, lovely place to, to be able to visit. There was a telephone on Inishvikalon, but Connolly had difficulty getting through. He finally managed to make contact at 10pm. When he did so, the line was very bad. The sense of it being unreal may have clouded his judgement. His first obligation was to inform Hohi that the prime suspect for the two murders had been captured in his apartment. But for some reason, Connolly was off the view there was no impediment to him departing on his long-planned holiday to the United States the very next morning. This was a serious misjudgment on his part. Hahi also made a catastrophic misjudgment. It might have been the bad line, but the full import of the situation did not fully sink in with him. Hahi also seems to have told Connolly it was okay to proceed with his holiday. That was to turn out to be a disaster. Here's Stephen Connolly. When your uncle spoke to Charlie Hawley and explained to him what had occurred, he said he was adamant that he got political clearance to proceed with his, with his holiday. That was his understanding. That's my understanding, yeah. He talked to him on the Friday night. If you think of, say, Friday nights, it's the end of the week. How clear was either the message being relayed or how clearly was the message being received? But then, you know, he did clear it with the, the detectives as well, as that was our understanding. The media by that stage were fully aware that MacArthur had been arrested in Connolly's flat. And so were senior figures in government, who quickly realised the seriousness of the situation. Bertie O'Hearn was travelling on that Saturday, on his way to a family holiday in Ballyferriger, County Kerry. He and others started making frantic phone calls, trying to reach Hahi on Inishvikalon. We were breaking up in the cabinet meetings, late July meetings, and they break up for the weekend. Like he was on the island, so he was away from it all. I was, I was due to go to, to Ballyferriger. I think I was even, might have been en route, because it, it was a fair old track to Ballyferriger in those days. <laughs> and he had tracked back again to Dublin. But then, of course, the whole pressure was on. Senior figures and politicians then tried to contact Hahi. It was proving difficult. To make a phone call to rural Ireland back then, you first of all had to contact the telephone operator in the local exchange, who would then contact you to the local number. I was whip, um, so I had to try and get on to, to Charlie High, and uh, he was on the island. The Ballyfersher exchange um, used to, to close down at six o'clock and one o'clock on a Saturday. My recollection is that I was the one who told him first. Can't be sure now on these times, but I think I was. He said almost nothing, so I'd say he, he definitely was shell-shocked. Connolly had briefly spoken to the Taoiseach the previous night. Others had also been hitting the phones. Hawley's private secretary, Sean Aylward, also succeeded in reaching him. Frank Dunlop was government press secretary at that time. He recalls Aylward's efforts to reach his boss. Apart altogether from the absolute horror of the incident itself, when we discovered uh, that nobody could contact the Taoiseach, 
because of the lines at the time. The telephone lines out to the island were uh, somewhat erratic. But eventually Sean Aylward made contact with the Taoiseach and told him the bones of what had happened. Remarks to me subsequently as to what Charlie said when he heard that, he said, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't believe you are. I mean, you know, but eventually he did believe it. Early on Saturday morning, two senior investigators, Detective Superintendent John Courtney of the Murder Squad and Inspector Noel Conroy arrived at Conley's apartment in Pilot View. They asked him to make a statement. He refused. Relations between the Gordy and the Attorney General were already strained since the previous night. Connolly and his family had felt aggrieved he had not been informed before the raid that MacArthur was wanted for murder. A stand-up row flared up between the three men with robust language used. Connolly stood his ground. He refused to make a statement and said he was continuing with his holiday plans to go to the US. Eventually, the two Gordy relented. Well, of course, Charlie Hogan was put in a, in a terrible position. Uh, Paddy Connolly, he knew well, the top legal person in the state. But a uh, double murder is found in his apartment and the pressure is on tact. I mean, people weren't waiting as usual. They weren't waiting for, for court cases. They, they had their judgment. Paddy Connolly was already in the air on the first leg of his trip. His itinerary would take him to London for one night and then by Concord to New York. He planned to travel on from there to New Orleans, Phoenix, Salt Lake City and Washington DC. By Saturday afternoon, Charlie Hoy had been fully briefed on the situation. He knew the political implications. By the time Hoy got through to Connolly in London, it was evening. He asked Connolly to return to Ireland, but Connolly declined. He told Hawhey they would speak again when he landed in New York. This is Stephen Connolly. You know, it wasn't the first time he had travelled in Concord. That's what he liked doing. He liked travelling extensively. And, you know, he talked about the treatment he'd received on the plane was, was superb, but he didn't enjoy it one bit. He just couldn't think of anything. He was completely distracted. And so he might be distracted. Already the news had leaked to the media. Frank Dunlop, the government press secretary, recalls what it was like. Meanwhile... All hell was breaking loose. Part altogether from the dreadful murders, the conspiracy theories got to work. Why would the senior law officer of the government, in whose apartment the suspect had been found, leave Ireland without any interface with the Gardaí, or indeed with anybody other than the Taoiseach of the day, and that the fact that he had done so began the urban myth that, in fact, there was something to hide and that uh, Charlie had given him the go-ahead to go on his holiday and things would be covered up. Now, you can imagine the pages and pages that were uh, devoted to the, in the Irish Times, the Irish Press, the Irish Independent at the time to the whole story. I mean, it was fantastic news, international news. It wasn't just national news, it was international news. On his arrival into the JFK airport terminal in New York, Connolly was besieged by a scrum of reporters who started firing questions indiscriminately at him. But then it had completely mushroomed. So the thing had, had escalated beyond belief. Paddy reference in the diary was the reception he got in, in New York from the journalists. And uh, he also referenced to the fact that he was absolutely shattered at that stage. 
The headline on the New York Post ran, Irish Biggie flees here after slay scandal. The New York Daily News was the slightly less declamatory Irish lawman in shocker. Well, when he landed in New York, I mean, he was confronted by, you know, the bear pit of American media. And there were questions thrown at him, which now, in retrospect, were raw and insulting and uh, difficult for him to, to handle. That was a foretaste uh, for him of what actually was at the nub of this. Well, I mean, that shows you what a story it was. Ireland, relatively small country, on the edge of Europe, not the most important place in the world. And here was a story that had every New York journalist, the Times, the Post, uh, the whole lot of them, absolutely goggle-eyed at it. And they, and they descended on the airport and descended on the unfortunate Mr. Connolly who stepped off a plane. So that'll show you how big it was. Connolly spoke again to Hahi in New York. This time, there was no ambiguity to the message. Charlie made the decision that he had to come back, and he ordered him back. Arrangements were made. Paddy Connolly flew by Concorde to London, and then he was collected by uh, an Air Corps plane in London and landed at Baldonnell and was instructed to come to uh, Kinsale. And I was instructed to be there. Journalist Brenda Parr thinks Connolly would have elicited little sympathy from the public for deciding to press on with his holidays in the face of what had occurred. A man accused of, of two unrelated, unprovoked, absolutely savage murderers is apparently a friend of yours. You have been unwittingly, as it might have been, harbouring him. And you're the chief law officer of the state and you go on your holidays and you have to be told to come home. That's what did for Paddy Connolly, in my view. That shows you the speed of this. I mean, the arrest was Friday night. Mr Connolly goes on his holiday on Saturday. He's back within 24 hours via London and New York clearly realising that something extremely large has hit the fan and he can't just uh, carry on like this. An elephantine something had indeed hit the fan. On his way back to London on the Concord, Patrick Connolly wrote out a statement setting out how he knew Malcolm MacArthur and how he had come to stay in his apartment. He went no further, but by that stage he knew the die had been cast. He arrived back to the Defence Force airbase in Baldonnell County, Dublin on Monday evening and was driven straight to Concealy, Charles Hahi's palatial home in North Dublin. There were dozens of TV cameras and photographers at every location. His brother Tony had tried, without success, to reach him before he arrived at Hahi's home. Here's Stephen Connolly talking about Paddy's entry in his diary for that day. Dad wanted to talk to him before him going out to Concealy. Again, my father's been far more practical. Anyway, he didn't get to speak to him. Uh, Paddy referred to going out to Concealy. He didn't refer to what was likely to happen. Uh, he referred to journalist cars chasing them. I mean, he had now entered very much into the, the political domain, something that he never wanted to do and something he was never interested in doing, uh, but he was firmly and squarely in it. And he had no option but to resign. Um, he couldn't not. Charles Hawhey had broken short his own holidays and had returned to Dublin on that Monday. Frank Dunlop drove out to the Gandon mansion in his battered Fiat Murafiori, running the gauntlet of a media scrum at the gates of the estate. He found Hahi all alone in the massive house. Paddy Connolly came back 
I'm sure the man was absolutely shattered, physically and mentally and all the rest of it, having traveled across the Atlantic and back within 24, 36 hours. I was instructed to be in Kinsili, went out to Kinsili, found Charlie there pacing around the place. It didn't seem to me to be overly concerned about his meeting with Paddy Connolly. He was given out yards by the fact that he hadn't had anything to eat that day. His wife was on holiday and he was alone in the house. For Patrick Connolly, it was to be a Hobson's choice. Resign or be fired. I arrived. The place was absolutely crawling, mostly photographers. And I just waved at them and went in because I just said, I'd, you know, I had, nothing to, I had nothing to add. And I went in and we had this conversation with Charlie and he said, listen, I want you nearby. I mean, you can't be in the room, but he said, I want you nearby. Now, I didn't know what Charlie meant, whether, you know, there was going to be difficulty or whatever, but um, Charlie did leave the door of his office slightly ajar. And I was nearby. It was a difficult conversation. Charlie had to insist he resigned. There was only one other option, that was he would fire him. Paddy Connolly kept making the point, I'm an innocent man. The circumstances in, in this are extraordinary, I admit, but I didn't murder anyone. I wasn't knowingly harboring a criminal, but this was where the tectonic plates had to move. This was the, the interface between politics and the law and between politics and extraordinary circumstances that had developed. And politics in these circumstances always wins. And politics won on this occasion as well. And Charlie said, look, I have to insist. Through the gap in the slightly ajar door, Dunlop could see the former Attorney General leave the room dejectedly. He left. He was a dejected man. He looked as if somebody had hit him with a sledgehammer. He was just completely dejected. He was the classic fall guy, Frank, wasn't absolutely. he? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And uh, he couldn't see why he should be the fall guy. After such drama and intrigue, the next challenge was a far more prosaic one. Hahi had had nothing to eat all day and there was no food in Kinsili. The entrance to his estate was swarming with reporters, photographers and TV cameras. Hahi's friend Pat O'Connor lived down the road he was also Hahi's solicitor and election agent. In another Gubu-esque occurrence, O'Connor had been cleared of charges of double voting in the 1982 general election. It led to the cruel nickname Pat O'Connor, Pat O'Connor. Here is how Dunlop recalls what happened next. Charlie said, listen, I'm going to go down to Pat O'Connor's to get something to eat. I've no driver, will you drive me? Now, Charlie, was being chauffeured around in a government Mercedes and I, my old battered Fiat Mirafiori was standing outside and, you know, being the father of two children at the time, you can imagine what the state, the internal state of the car was, but I got Charlie in. He said, be careful now coming out onto the Malahide Road and there is a very sharp turn onto a busy road if you're going to head to Malahide. All I could think of was all these photographers, uh, how the devil are we going to get through? So I just put the boot down and kept going at the gate. And Charlie kept saying to me, be careful. But we got through. I raced down the Malahide Road, stopped outside Pat O'Connor's house. Charlie sh showed some great agility on that evening. He hopped out of the car very, very fast and went into the gates and hid behind a tree. And I drove on to Malahide, chased by... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure the photographer from the Irish Times and the photographer from the Irish Independent. But when, we, when I arrived in the uh, pub in uh, Malahide, they followed me and said, where is he, where is he? I said, not with me. 
But they knew, they knew that he had been in my car and they knew I had deposited him somewhere, but they couldn't work out where. And exhausted, Patrick Connolly returned home to Pilot View, where his brother met him. It had been a shattering and a bitter experience. Here's Stephen Connolly on how the whole affair had left a sour taste in their mouths. The whole thing was handled badly from a political point of view. The political masters should have been dictating more clearly to him what they expected of him. His Taoiseach should have been clearer on it. You know, the reality is that he should never have gone to, to New York, but he was oblivious to that type of thing. It just wasn't on his radar, but it should have been on, on other people's radar. And as I said, he, he came back in absolutely exhausted. And, and he, as he walked up the steps into his apartment, the, again, the place was mobbed. He turned around and suggested to some of the, the journalists there as to what he might like them to do. Okay, he might have released an F-bomb to some of the reporters. It did not, he might have, he did. <laughs> and he, he, he derived a, a fair degree of pleasure out of that. The following morning, the newspaper headlines reflected the events of the night before, all running with Attorney General Resigns stories. If the government thought that this had drawn a line under the affair, it was sorely mistaken. The media pressure was relentless. I presume that you were snowed under with and inundated with, with calls. Unbelievable. You put the phone down, it would ring immediately. If you just lift the phone, hang it up, lift the phone, hang it up. Uh, you couldn't almost take a breath. And one, one theory was worse than the other. And you kept saying, look, it's a garden matter. We cannot discuss this issue. There had been a dearth of information released by the government over the weekend, and the small amount of information that had been released had seemed confusing and contradictory. Already, theories about cover-ups and conspiracies were abounding. The Government Information Service decided the best way to clear up all the supposition was to have Hahi host a press conference. First, they had to convince Charlie Hahi, who was reluctant. Charlie hated press conferences, couldn't abide press conferences. Felt that there were gang-ups against him. Wasn't too far wrong about that in a number of occasions, in fairness to him. High's relationship with the media was generally one of thinly disguised detestation. Frank Dunlop's view is there was a change of culture during the 1970s. From a cultural point of view, he had a very fractious relationship with the Fourth Estate. And prior to 1970, people might find this slightly difficult to understand, but the media were rather deferential to politics, senior politicians, and every word that politicians said was taken as gospel or was taken as being very, very important. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. And we will have... Uh full of details on this momentous story in just a moment, a story that many of us are still having trouble believing actually occurred. After the Watergate incident, but particularly uh, after All the President's Men, there was a huge influx of young, enthusiastic uh, people into journalism. I suppose I was part of that new uh, generation of journalists, although I wasn't a political journalist. I did get an, involved in some political reporting. This is Peter Murta. 
it's often said that people look back now with the benefit of hindsight, you know, well, where were the journalists? They weren't asking questions, blah, blah, blah. That's not true. Journalists were asking questions. Everybody wondered, how come this man who was born in the circumstances we know was now living in a Gandon mansion in North County Dublin and living high on the hog? Where was the money coming from? But whenever you asked those questions, you were firmly slapped down by, by Hawhey and those around him that it was none of your business. You had no right to be asking these sort of questions. The most I could ever get was that people around him, people like Frank Dunlop and, and others around him would say, oh, he, he got his wealth from shrewd investments, clever investments, and he's going to make the country rich in the way he's made himself rich. And this was supposed to be a plus. So the notion of transparency in politics, which now would be an absolute cornerstone stone of politics and that absolutely a politician must account for his or her income and wealth. That notion was not widely accepted 40 years ago and it certainly wasn't accepted by uh, Charles Hawley for reasons we now know. Olivia O'Leary was another of that new generation of journalists who did not readily accept the government line. I think perhaps the only relationship one could have had with Charles Hawley as a journalist was either to be regarded by him as a critic and an opponent, or else to be a total lapdog. There was nowhere in between. Again, go back to the context of the time. This is August. It is halfway through probably the most ramshackle government in a century in Ireland. It was, it was a, a disastrous government. It lurched from crisis to crisis. Within Fianna Fáil, there were several heaves against Mr. Hawhey's leadership. There was faction fighting, etc., etc. And so something like this blows up and the person most concerned hops on a plane and goes on holidays. So lots of people were making assumptions, almost all of them incorrect. They weren't getting into print because responsible newspapers and broadcasters don't do that. But certainly if you, try, if you fast forward to today, God knows how something like this would be handled. You could imagine the spontaneous Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Taneous combustion that would have occurred on social media. Even then, in a world devoid of hashtags and tweets, it was a sensation. The press conference was meant to clear matters up, but the opposite happened. It occurred in the Fianna Fáil room on the third floor of Leinster House, home of the Irish Parliament. And Charlie sat in the middle of the table alone. Not one government minister was present. The chief whip wasn't there, and no backbencher was there. Charlie was there on his own, and I was sitting at the end of the table. The atmosphere was hostile. When I say hostile, it was expectant. There were a lot of conspiracy theories around about what the devil was going on. Yes, I understand that uh, this is a un Precedented situation, and one that has come as a shock uh, to many people, including myself. The room was fairly packed, and there was a, a lot of camera crew there. I, I remember I was quite forward in the, in the kind of the, the scrum of media that was there. I was near the front, and I remember asking 
A lot of questions in rapid succession, uh, very short questions, essentially as to when did Mr. Connolly know things, when did he, the Taoiseach, know things, you know, why did Mr. Connolly resign if he's done nothing wrong, etc., etc. When did you become aware that a gun had been found in the flat? Uh, sometime on Saturday. Sometime on Saturday, yes. before Mr. Connolly left the country? No, 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 no. You don't know? No. No, what do you think of Mr. Connolly's judgment in leaving the country? Well, I, I, Mr. Connolly has uh, given his own statement on that, and I wouldn't like to comment any further on it. Mr. Connolly says that. No, I really am not. You know, I've said. I it, think I've, this is a very important, Taoiseach. Yeah, you've asked about. Excuse me. You've asked me about plenty questions already. Taoiseach, I've answered them all as fully in, as I can. I in, really have nothing in his more. In the future, Taoiseach, you haven't asked any questions. Yes, in the future. You know, on the scale of one to ten of hostility, I would say it was uh, around five. Charlie made a statement and used the famous words, grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre, unprecedented, all of which was correct. It was grotesque, it was unbelievable, it was bizarre, it was unprecedented. Hahi made one big error when asked about the Gorda investigation. Here's Frank Dunlop again. It was an Irish journalist who said, would you like to say, say anything to the guards about the whole thing? And Charlie said, faithfully, Yes, I'd like to congratulate the guards on getting the right man. But I knew instinctively, I knew, oh, wrong, that's wrong. And I can visualise, as I speak to you now, the look on Peter Murray's face. Peter Murray sort of looked at me, um, sort of questioningly, and said, yeah. So, um, but there was one rule when you were dealing with Charlie and press conference, you didn't interrupt him. Him saying getting the right man might have potentially prejudiced a criminal trial. That created headlines. But the lasting legacy of the press conference were the adjectives that peppered Hahi's explanation. Some friend of mine described it as a grotesque mischance, unprecedented situation, a bizarre happening, an unbelievable mischance. A few days later, in a venomous column in the Irish Times, the former politician, Conor Cruz O'Brien, who was an arch enemy of Hahi, seized on the adjectives and created the acronym GUBU. In his column, O'Brien wrote, and I quote, Under Mr. Hahi, stunts have followed on happenings, and happenings on stunts. The stunts have misfired, and the happenings have been mishandled. It wasn't called Watergate in, in the Irish context, it was called Gubu. And that was the acronym that Conor Cruz O'Brien very cleverly made out of Charlie's understandable use of words at the time of the, of the MacArthur affair. The MacArthur affair essentially did for Charlie Hawhey's fragile government. It collapsed several weeks later, as Bertie Ahern recalls. Everything after that was a real crisis year. Like it seemed to be every month there was something big and, and the MacArthur murders happened and, and it was a, a rocket that I don't think he expected could possibly be there. So the whole summer became a, a disaster. And of course the, the implications immediately were that there was some you know, Paddy Connolly must have known this or he, would have, he was aware of this and as we know, none of that was, was, was true. It was just an extraordinary friendship with, you know, such profound effects and I don't think Charlie quite, quite ever got over that, that such a thing could happen. Suddenly, all the things, well, the bad things, that happened when Charlie Hawhey was leader became categorised under the umbrella of Gubu. You know, in fairness to the man, I mean, he was under pressure, not, not for kind of any fault of his, if you like. It was the, the situation, which was a goo-boo situation, and Hawhey was right in the middle of it. And I think no politician likes 
exploding landmines. They like to feel that they're in control, that they're on top of things. And clearly, Hawhey was not in control of the situation. He was not on top of it. He was doing, in fairness to him, I think the best he could under the circumstances. But there were, there were so many questions arising from this. You know, we, we've talked about if something like this happened now, rumours would be flying around so fast. Well, even then, rumours were flying around. People made assumptions. They made assumptions that this was a stitch-up. Was it a stitch-up? In the final episode of Gubu, we look at the murder trial, the conspiracy theories and false rumours that persisted about gay affairs and cover-ups. We examine an alleged plan by MacArthur to kill his mother. We explore how the affair impacted on the careers of Charles Hawhey and Patrick Connolly. And what happened to Malcolm MacArthur in the intervening 40 years since 1982. Finally, we turn to the tangled question of what motivated him. What made him do what he did? Gubu is an Irish Times audio production. It was written, produced and presented by myself, Harry McGee. The editor of Gubu was Enda O'Dowd. The executive editor and senior producer of audio at the Irish Times is Declan Conlon. Sound mix was by JJ Vernon. Graphics was by Paul Scott. The title music was by Oracle. We thank the RTE Archives, Reuters, the Jimmy Carter Library, the Ronald Reagan Library, and the Arachthas TV Archive. For further comprehensive coverage of the Gubu scandal, including articles, notes, photographs, and maps, visit irishtimes.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support future long-term projects, please consider subscribing at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe.